you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them this morning to Genesis 17. This will be our final message uh, in Genesis until the new year. Um, Now, when we last left the narrative, last week we talked about the idea of the identity of the angel of the Lord. But when we last left the narrative in Genesis 16, Abram had taken Sarai's handmaid Hagar to wife and had conceived with her a child. And it became apparent very quickly that this was a mistake. Sarai deals very harshly with Hagar. Hagar responds by fleeing from her mistress. The angel of the Lord finds Hagar, comforts her, commands her to return and to submit herself to her mistress on the Lord's assurances that he would bless both her and her child for doing so. Hagar believes the Lord. She exercises that faith and she returns to her mistress. She names the well where God spoke with her, Thou God seest me. And in this, Hagar reflects a beautiful sentiment which... Though I did not focus a sermon on it, we did mention it a couple of times, is worthy of your meditation, it's worthy of your personal focus, that God is a God who saw Hagar, that God is a God who, who, who saw not just Abram, not just Sarai, but also saw Hagar. Thou God seest me. Now we move on this week to Genesis 17. And as the narrative progresses, so too does the revelation that Abram receives. We're going to try to get through the entire chapter this morning, and I was tempted to break it up and preach a couple of different messages on it, but I think we will suffice with what we have uh, as we read this morning. So in verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. Now the Bible tells us that Abram is now 99 years old. But just one verse earlier in Genesis chapter 16, verse 16, it says, if you have your Bibles open, and Abram was four score and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. So uh, Abram was 86 years old when we last left him in Genesis chapter 16, verse 16. Then in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, we are now something like... 13 years later, 13, 14-ish years later, removed from the incident, uh, from, the, from all, all of the, the various uh, events of Genesis chapter 16. And I would like you to think with me about that for a moment. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Sometime within then the next 11 years, what we find between Genesis Um, uh, 12, excuse me, and Genesis 16 is he comes into the land, then he goes down to Egypt, then he returns back uh, from Egypt. Uh, He, of course, rescues his nephew Lot. He receives God's promise of his child, as we studied in Genesis 15. He received those covenants. And then, of course, in Genesis 16, uh, he has a child, or at least he conceives a child with Hagar. And he has Ishmael with Hagar when he's 86 years old. So there's 11 years within that span. Ishmael is born, and we wait another 12 to 13 years. After this, before God gives any more revelation, at least as we have recorded in our scriptures. Now, not to completely spoil the plot, but it's here in Genesis chapter 17 that God will make it very clear that Sarai will have a child. God was asking Abram and Sarai, in other words, to wait decades to see his promise come to fruition. And this is worthy of our 
perspective. It's worthy to think along these lines. We'll talk a little bit more about it in, in, in a little bit of time. But, but we read through the scriptures and we read through Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and you may read through them in one day. You may read through them in, in, in a couple of days, a couple of mornings of your, of your devotions, and you read through this history. But we are talking about 20 years of history. We are talking about a man that, that is traveling and that is receiving this promise, and then he's waiting a decade before the Lord gives him the next glimmer of what that means, of what that promise is supposed to mean. And that perspective will be helpful to us as we continue. So be thinking through that idea. In this context, it might help us to understand why it was even that Sarai felt so vulnerable about not having a child. In this context, it might help us appreciate why it was that Abram consented to take Hagar and produce an heir with her. It doesn't make it right, but let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. Abram was asked to wait something like 15 years between when God had said he would have a son and the events of Genesis 17, as we'll read about them today. Can we perhaps understand why it would be that Sarai felt so confused and vulnerable? Can we perhaps understand why Abram was willing to yield his headship to take Hagar to be his wife, have a child with her? How many of us could perceive a promise from God to be confident that the Lord has a place or a direction for you. And you invest yourself in that promise and you step out in faith and you put yourself out there for the promise that you believe the Lord has or the commission, the call that you believe the Lord has for you. How many of us in that condition would be willing to wait even one year to see that promise come to pass? How many of us would start wondering quite quickly whether or not we had missed something in regard to God's plan at one year? after we stepped out in faith, left our entire family, went into a place where we were strangers and pilgrims, dwelt in tents because God said he would make of you a great nation. How many of us would wait a year? Two years? How many of us are willing to wait and to labor and to endure for better than a decade on the expectation of something that you believe God wants to do through you or give to you without at some point losing heart, getting confused, wondering if maybe you misunderstood God's plan or God's purpose and seeking to change the scenario. So here we are, better than a decade after Abram's vision of God walking through the blood of the covenant in Genesis 15. Better than a decade after Ishmael is born to Hagar. And the Lord now appears and presents himself in a new way as the almighty God. Now, this is the first time that God has presented himself by this name to man. Recall that God has, throughout the scriptures, throughout Genesis, been progressively revealing himself to mankind and also to us as the readers as we're reading through Genesis. God was initially introduced to us as creator, the one who, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And we see in that idea of God creating the heaven and the earth and even the idea of in the beginning, we see a God who is above time. We see a God who is the creator. Thus, we see a God who, and we talked through this at the beginning, if you've not heard those very early sermons in Genesis, through that very first verse and through the reality, we see 
the beginning of time, space, and matter, and we see a God who is outside of time, space, and matter because God created time, space, and matter. And if God is outside of time, space, and matter, that tells us things about the character of God. If God is outside of time and he is not bound by time, that means that he is uh, omnipresent, or excuse me, uh, all-knowing, omniscient, right? He knows all things. If he is outside of matter, then he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful because there is no matter that he can be bound to. And then, of course, if he is outside of space, then he is also omnipresent. He is everywhere because space is, he is outside of space. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. He's outside of matter. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. So we learn this of the character of our God. Then we step into Adam's day and we see that God is gracious. We also see this in Noah's day as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We see God's judgment through the flood and we find that God is righteous on top of being gracious. But it is really not until we explore God's personal interactions, beginning with Abram, that we start to see God name himself and define himself. God's actions have defined him to this point. But then in Genesis chapter 12, God begins to introduce himself personally to man. And that's the shift that we see in Genesis 12. The shift that we see in Genesis 12 is a narrative whereby we see God doing to the time where we actually get to peel back the curtain and see the personal nature of God. We get to see those personal interactions. Yes, there was a little bit with Adam and Eve, but it was uh, very minor. It is with Abraham that we begin to see the personal nature of our God. And God begins, us, begins to give us the I am's. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. You recall we talked about on that day of the vulnerability that Abram was in when he did not understand what God was doing. After this verse, he will question God and say, Yes, God, uh, I understand this about you, but, but what are you going to do seeing I go childless? He was confused. He was vulnerable. And in that state of confusion and vulnerability, God needed him to know that God was his shield. God was his reward. That the child was not his reward. God was his reward. That the land was not his reward. God was his reward. And this is the I am that we received of God. In that day, that He is our shield, He is our reward, He is our inheritance. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, God said, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees. So He introduced Himself as the God who is a directing God, a personal God, a God who would take Him in the way that He should go. And then, of course, last time we were together, we saw Him and, and, and how Hagar um, recognized Him as the God who sees in Genesis 16. The name there, El Royi, in the Hebrew. And this week we come to the next I am. I am the Almighty God, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. This is a fairly familiar name for God. If you've ever gone through one of those uh, lists of the names of God in the Bible, this is El Shaddai, the Almighty God. This name presented to Abram at this time is no more of an accident than when God presented himself to Abram in Genesis 15 as his shield and his exceeding great reward. In Genesis 15, Abram is confused. Abram is feeling vulnerable. And so God presents himself as the, the solution to Abram's confusion and vulnerability because he is the reward. 
And here in Genesis chapter 17, as we continue through the text, what we're going to find is that God once again presents himself in the exact manner that Abram needs in order to understand who God is in this time. So as we continue through the text, we're going to do so as we've done before. We're going to consider the circumstances within which Abram finds himself. We're going to consider the promises God made to him on that day. And then, of course, we'll understand how these things apply to our own lives. So in verse 2, then, God again affirms, we would say reaffirms the promise he has made to Abram. And while in our reading this may seem quite redundant, this is the third chapter in a row now, where God is making these same assurances and these same promises and these same blessings. This is the sixth chapter since God's original promise. How many times does Abram have to hear the promise? Remember that we're 24 years removed from Genesis 12. And Abram still doesn't have the promises. If someone makes you a promise, and 24 years later it's not yet fulfilled, how many times might you expect it would be nice to hear them say that the promise is still happening? Is four okay? Four is probably okay in 24 years. An average of every six years they come and they reaffirm to you that, that things are still happening. It's probably okay. So if you answer more than four, then just cut Abram a little bit of slack here in these 24 years that he's been waiting for the promises. So God says in verse 2 that he will make a covenant between the Lord and Abram, and he will multiply Abram's seed exceedingly. We continue, verses 3 and 4. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Notice the distinct difference between the manner of Abram's response here and that which we considered in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God introduces himself to Abram as his shield, as his exceeding great reward, because Abram is discouraged and he is confused and he's struggling with his perception of God's promises contrasted with his current circumstances. God in that day needed to remind Abram that he was the reward, not the child not the nation, that God was the reward and everything else that would come was the overflow. The true reward was the city that Abraham sought whose builder and maker was God. Now this time, I believe that this response reflects that Abram is not confused, nor is he discouraged. Maybe that's because he actually has a son at this point. So he's able to more easily navigate in his own mind and in his own heart the many years that have gone by since God's promises were made to him so that Abram's response this time is not to answer back, well, God, what are you going to do seeing I go childless and Eliezer of Damascus, my servant is my heir. Instead, this time, he falls upon his face. That picture of submission, of yieldedness, he, he simply responds by subjecting himself to God. But in my sanctified imagination, which I've used quite a bit in, in, in this Genesis series, I do wonder if Abram himself was wondering why God was coming to him with this new name. God presents himself here. I am the Almighty God. I am El Shaddai. Now in Genesis 15, God comes and he says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram recognizes in that day, perhaps, I really needed that God. I needed to know that you are my shield and my exceeding great reward because on this day, I don't see the reward. I'm not understanding how it is that you are my shield. And now God shows up again and he says to Abram, I am the almighty God. And Abram falls on his face and says, I wonder why God's trying to tell me that. I wonder why God needs me to know that today. 
Why does God need Abram to know today that he is the almighty God? Things are going pretty well. His son's nearly 13 years old. Uh, Hagar's back. She submitted herself. The son is there. The son is being raised, presumably by Sarah and Abraham. And God assures Abram on this day, some 12-ish years after Abram is born, that the covenant between Abram and God established in Genesis 15 was still in effect, that God had not gone anywhere, that things were still happening, and was still with Abram. Verses 5 through 8. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So as God then moves forward with a reiteration of these promises, he begins by changing Abram's name. And I personally am very excited about this because now I can call him Abraham, and that's a much more natural, and I can get over the Sarai thing, and I can start calling her Sarah. So I'm personally very excited to be in Genesis 15 uh, for that reason. But God changes the name here, and, and this is not arbitrary. Names in the Bible are important. Now, not every birth name that's given in the Bible to a man or woman is directly important, but many also are. And it was God who commanded Hagar's son to be named Ishmael, meaning God shall hear. It will be God in this chapter who will command that the son between Abraham and Sarah be named Isaac. The name, uh, excuse me, be, be, yes, be named Isaac. And then, of course, the name Jacob in the subsequent chapter and Esau in the subsequent chapters, we will find to have significance as well, especially when Jacob's name is renamed Israel. And this is because a name is an identity. And we've seen this in the book already. As a matter of fact, God is the prototype for this. The fact that God keeps presenting himself by names. Hagar gave God a name that, that reflected who he had been to her, not who she wanted him to be. It's not her perception of him, but it's who he was as he interacted with her. It was an identification of his character as reflected in his name. Thou God seest me. When he identified himself and his character as the shield and the reward. Now he identifies himself and his character as the almighty God. So we see that names have meaning, especially when someone's name is changed or someone's name is designated. There's no question then that there is reason for that. A name change indicating a, re, a purposeful reassociation. A change not of personality. A change not of behavior necessarily, but a change certainly of identity. Because that's the idea of a name. And this is what we see here. God changes the name from Avram or Abram, a contracted form of the name Abraim or Abiram, meaning father of height or high father, exalted father, to Abraham. Avraham, meaning father of a multitude. It's intended to, re, to change his identity to be connected directly to the promise that he made. And as with all of God's other efforts and expressions, this is intended to testify to Abraham of the depth and the surety of this promise, though it has been at this point 24 years in the making. 
God then, having changed Abraham's name, reiterates the promises that he would make Abraham a father of many nations, that he would make Abraham exceedingly fruitful, that kings would come from him, and that the land would be given to his family after him for an everlasting possession. Now, none of these promises are new, but Abraham has not heard them from the mouth of God, presumably, at least on the record, as we have it in the scriptures, for at least 13 years. Continuing then in verses seven through, or 9 through 14. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou, and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man, child, among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man, child, in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant." And the circumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, uncircumcised man-child, yep, uh, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. So God then institutes this sign of the covenant that he has made between the nation which would come from Abraham and himself. And that sign is the sign of circumcision, the removal of the male foreskin on the eighth day after his birth to indicate an initiation into this Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham and with his seed on that day. And as we continue, we are going to see that the explicit seed that God says this would be initiated with is not Ishmael, but is in fact Isaac. The physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And we talked about this several weeks ago as we reason through why it is we believe that God still has a plan for national Israel, why it is that we believe that God has not cast off Israel or that the church has replaced Israel. For while both Old Testament and New Testament certainly use the picture of circumcision to speak to the heart of a man being set apart to God in this age of grace, so that the Bible in, in Colossians, it talks about the idea that we are circumcised with a circumcision made without flesh. Yet it is, it is a true stretch to connect this to the promise of God made to Abraham in the beginning in Genesis 15. And so we talked about that then, and we talked about, about why it is we believe that God still has a plan for Israel, if, in part because, or at least substantiated by, this sign of circumcision that was given to Abraham on that day. So we see God make these promises to Abraham, and we see him seal it with this physical circumcision, connected not to the will of the young man, Involved, but rather to the faith of his parents. And by extension, the blood family, the nation regarding God's promises to them. This is a national covenant. It has nothing to do with whether or not that individual child will or will not choose to follow God. It has everything to do with whether or not the parents have the faith to then induct the next generation into the covenant. And the sign was commanded to be exercised not only to those that were born of Abraham's seed, but of all who would be connected to the nation, of all who were in his household, blood-born sons of Abraham, but also any of the servants or slaves that would have been brought, uh, bought who lived in the house of Abraham. And, and God says that any who would not be circumcised would then be cut off from the people and from the covenant. 
Now, I take a moment here to remind you that this covenant was made to Abraham in direct connection to him and to his posterity. That this is not a covenant that finds any obligation in New Testament Christianity. But rather, as Paul says regarding the church in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, there is in the church neither Jew, nor Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. In Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but only Christ. Earlier in the book of Colossians, Paul spoke of the circumcision made without hands in the putting off the sins, uh, the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That our circumcision is a circumcision of Christ, not connected to our body, but connected to our spirit. Evident not in the putting off of the body of the flesh, the removal of the foreskin, but in the putting off of the sins of the flesh when Christ circumcises our hearts. As our Savior breaks the chains of sin which bind us through the nature of Adam which is in us. History records that because of the unambiguous refutation of the necessity of circumcision in the Bible, and because Paul is very clear that Christianity is not bound to the sign of circumcision, those wings of Christendom who believe that the church has irrefutably replaced Israel have sought for something to replace circumcision as a sign of the covenant. So within various replacement wings, uh, institutions, uh, or denominations... Uh, whether that be the Roman Catholic Church or whether that be various uh, Reformed denominations, we find um, what's called infant baptism or pedo-baptism. And the idea of infant baptism actually comes from this concept of infant circumcision. So pedo-baptism is the idea that one is being baptized into the church. They are being baptized into the institution. And as a part of being baptized into the institution, the concept is that you are carrying forth this covenant from generation to generation. And the reason why we see that is because, well, within the scope of these replacement denominations, they felt it, that it was very important that they still carry forth the sign of the covenant. If the church is the new Israel, how do we carry forth the sign of the covenant that God has given to Israel, whereby we induct the next generation into Covenant. We connect them to this institution that is the covenanted institution, and we move forward as God's Israel. We could not use circumcision because Paul is very clear in the New Testament that circumcision is not a requirement, and so they transitioned instead to baptism, which is why the church instituted this idea of infant baptism and christening, where a child would be inducted into the promises of the church, they would be given their Christian name, and so they would be associated church and the beliefs of their, or, uh, of their church associate, and, and by doing so, they believed associated with Christ as well. And then, of course, most of them go through a confirmation process to solidify the child's faith in their dogmas at a later age. Naturally, none of this is actually taught in the Bible, and that doesn't inherently make it wrong, but as the majority of these wings, uh, Reformed wings or the Roman Catholic Church, apply this concept, they certainly serve to obscure the gospel. They claim an unbiblical authority in their institutions. And of course, as we would believe, they confuse God's promises both to his church and to the children of Abraham. 
This is why we do not uh, engage in, in, in any form of infant baptism ourselves. Naturally, as those who are Baptists, we acknowledge that a believer's baptism, a baptism of those who have accepted Christ as their Savior, is what the Bible commands, because that's what the Bible commands. Um, but we also do not seek to muddy the water of said baptism or of said uh, associations through an infant baptism of sorts. Not making infant baptism explicitly sinful, but believing that it muddies the waters of the gospel, of a person's uh, need to individually choose Christ, and then, of course, to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Back to Genesis then. God has now established circumcision as the sign of the covenant. We continue in verses 15 and 16. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Now to this point in the text, Abraham has heard nothing new by way of promises. God gave the same promises that he would make of him a great nation, that from that nation would come kings, that there would be a, 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 a multitude. The only thing that was new is the sign of the circumcision, by which would be a sign of entering into all of those promises through, from perpetual generations. Until this point, in verses 15 and 16, God introduces something very new. Along with changing Abraham's name to indicate that he would be the father of many nations, God then also changes Abraham's wife's name from Sarai to Sarah. In the same way that Abram's name was thus changed to reflect the promises that were given to him, his wife's name would be changed from Sarai, meaning princess, to Sarah, meaning noblewoman. And God says he would do this thing to indicate that she also would have a child and that it would be her son with Abraham that would become the great promised seed. That it would be through Sarah that these kings and these nations would come. And it is in this moment that you can perhaps understand why it is that God began his interaction on this day by introducing himself as the Almighty God. So we read, Then Abraham, verse 17, fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? So Abram is actually somewhat incredulous here. He falls upon his face. And I don't believe that this falling upon his face is the idea that he was laughing so hard he fell upon his face. I think this is the same falling upon his face that we saw earlier in the chapter, which is that he is falling upon his face as a means by which to revere and to submit himself to God. Once again, we're not seeing confusion. We're not seeing a uh, uh, disorientation here in that sense. We are seeing him submit himself, but he does laugh in his heart and say in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that's 100 years old? We don't believe, I don't believe that there's a doubt of, of discouragement or a doubt of circumstance here. He's simply incredulous. He says, I'm 100 years old. Well, the Bible says he's 99, so he's rounding up here. I have a wife who's 90 years old. Uh, quite possibly she's 90, maybe she's 89. He may be rounded up there as well, but we believe that it's generally something like a 10-year gap between them. And he says, will she bear a child? Now, we know that the biological realities of men and women were still somewhat different at that time than what they are today. Abraham was still quite spry and well at, at 90 years old. We recognize that men were still living well into their hundreds at this point. Uh, we also understand that, that 
that, that when Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt, uh, when they were something like 75, you know, Abraham was 75, 80 years old, somewhere around there. He goes to Egypt. That means Sarah's somewhere in her 65 to 70. And she was so beautiful that he had to lie about her so that she wouldn't be taken. Uh, so so we, we recognize that aging and everything wasn't quite the same as it is today. But it would seem that 90 years old is still well past the time that a woman was expected to bear a child at that point. In fact, perhaps as we look back, as I've said already, as I've alluded to, perhaps as we look back upon Genesis chapter 16 and we think of Sarah and her, her frustration and her willingness to give Hagar to Abraham, maybe it was on the day that her body ceased showing the signs of biological fertility that she decided that's when Abraham should marry someone else. Maybe she kept the faith and she was holding out hope that she would bear a child until the day that having a child became a biological impossibility for her. Maybe that's the day that she realized, okay, that must not be God's plan anymore. And maybe that's the day that she went up to Abraham and said, look, I can't have children anymore. <laughs> now it's time for you to have a child through someone else. And on this day, God needed Abraham to know that he was the almighty God. That God is a God of the body as well as the soul. And in the day that Abraham doubted God's goodness, God reminded Abraham that he was Abraham's shield and great reward. Now on this day, when Abraham doubted the biological possibility of his wife having a child, what God needed to remind Abraham is that he was the almighty God. And Abraham is actually so taken aback by this that he appeals for God not to do it. Verses 18 through 20. And Abraham said unto God, O oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. And with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. So Abraham actually appeals to God here. And this is, this is, this is strange. He, God says, I'm going to give your actual wife a child. And Abraham laughs, and he says in his heart, I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90 years old. That's not going to happen. God, how about you just accept Ishmael? Why can't Ishmael just be the one? Look, I've already got him. He's doing okay. He's nearly 13 years old. How about Ishmael? Imagine that. After all these years, Abraham finds himself asking God just to let things be. Nope, don't bless my wife. Don't give my wife a kid. And there might be several reasons for this. Perhaps you could think of others that I haven't. But as a husband, I would imagine the reason that he... Uh, is that he, he saw the pain in his wife's face for so long that she was not having a child. As we talked about in Genesis 16, that she's in the way, that she's uh, standing between her husband and her husband's promises and blessings. And now, 13 years after Ishmael, maybe Sarah's quite resigned and content. Things are going well. God, why do we have to rock the boat? All right, we've got this son. He's ours. We're raising him. Sarah's pretty content. Let's just not rock the boat here. And for Abraham to even suggest that Sarah might have a child, to get her hopes up in any manner, say, am I really going to go to my wife now and say, God just said you're going to have a kid? Uh, and I think Abraham here just maybe is 
let's just let, let be what is. And if Abram were talking to a doctor and that doctor were describing his confidence in the biological impossibility that Sarah was going to have a, ki- a child and Abraham was to go up to Sarah and say, look, I know it's biologically impossible for you to have kids, but I'm telling you, you're going to have a kid. Doctor so-and-so said, so yeah, that would be cruel. But Abraham wasn't talking to a doctor. Abraham wasn't even talking to a prophet. Abraham was talking to the Almighty God. So God rejects Abraham's appeal. He insists on blessing Sarah, assuring Abraham that Ishmael would also be blessed. He would become a great nation. He'll have 12 children. 12 princes would come from him. The Bible affirms that later. We'll talk about that later. But he says it will be with the child of Sarah that God would continue his plan. So we read in verses 21 and 22. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. Now at this point, Abraham is not acting faithless. He seems to be acting pretty much only confused. He fell on his face and he laughed, showing he was yet submitted, but he was confused. His doubt never gave way to faithlessness. So God simply corrects the doubtful thinking. He says, nope, Sarah is going to have a kid. I reject the idea that Isaac is going to be the one, or that Ishmael is going to be the one. Isaac is going to be the one. He affirms that Sarah will have this child, and then he leaves. And Abraham, for all of his incredulity, sets out immediately to do everything that he has commanded. And that's what we see as we finish the chapter, verses 23 through 27. And Abraham took Ishmael his son and all that were born in his house and all that were bought with his money, every male among the the men of Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God said unto him. And Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael his son and all the men of his house born in the house and bought with the money of, a, of the strain, with money of the stranger were circumcised with him. So Abraham does what he's told. He he asks God. He appeals to God. Doesn't exactly know how all that's going to go, but he knows what to do next. He circumcises himself. He he circumcises every male in his household. Uh, Abraham is circumcised at 99 years old. Ishmael is circumcised at 13 years old. It's worth noting that Isaac, who is the one that God says would be the child of promise will be the first child on record that is circumcised on the day he's supposed to be, on the eighth day after birth. And once again, we would believe that that would be intentional. God reflecting that he is the one who is the first child to enter into circumcision directly in line with God's command on the eighth day. So we come to the end of the chapter. And as we close, many things that we could turn our mind to. But the thing I'd like to think about today is this contrast that I've been painting between Genesis 17 and Genesis 15. That God presented himself in Genesis 15 as your shield and your reward. That the reward of God God is not directly the things he gives to you, but it is he himself. That he is our shield. That he is our reward. That the Lord is the reward of the righteous. And perhaps that was an encouragement to you on that day. Perhaps you needed that reminder on that day. Or perhaps that's not where you found yourself on that day. Perhaps that's not where you find yourself on this time. Perhaps uh, you're not in that place of vulnerability or confusion or discouragement as it relates to God and his workings. Maybe you see 
what God is, is doing or you understand what God can do in that sense and you're not discouraged and you're not feeling vulnerable and maybe on this day you don't necessarily need to see God as the shield and reward, maybe you need to be reminded today that he is the almighty God. A God for whom nothing is beyond his power and his ability. Nothing in heaven and earth contend, contend with his authority. And there are many expressions of this truth throughout the pages of scripture, but perhaps none so well put, so poignant, or so beautiful as that which we read in Isaiah 40. I went to a few of these verses a couple of weeks ago, but I'd like to read a larger portion of Isaiah 40 today. And then we'll have some concluding thoughts on it. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says this. Speaking of our God, God speaking of himself, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot, and seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning, from all the way back in Genesis? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretches out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing, and maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted, yea, they shall not be t uh, sown, yea, their stalk shall not take root in the earth, and he shall also blow upon them. And they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their hosts by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Passage ends quite beautifully. You can go finish it on your own if, if, uh, if, if you would like. But as we read that passage of Scripture, 
That is the essence of what God is doing on this day when he presents himself to Abraham as the Almighty God. He is about to do something for Abraham that is biologically impossible, that is physically impossible. And on that day, Abraham does not understand how it would even work that God would do this thing, and yet that is the point, that God is the Almighty God, that there is nothing too hard for him. This is the God who we serve still, Christian, expressed to us in perfection through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And if you have received that Son as your Savior, then this God is your God. He is the Almighty God, and He is your advocate. He is your Father. He is your friend. And today, Christian, perhaps it's not that you are discouraged and feeling vulnerable. Perhaps it is that you are confused. Perhaps it is that you have seen the Lord, that you have believed the Lord to want to do something, but you don't see how it's possible Perhaps you face some insurmountable human challenge, relationships, direction, health, provision, wisdom, and you find yourself overwhelmed at the things which life is asking of you. And on that day in each of our lives, we turn to the testimony of Abraham to be reminded that Jehovah God is also that God who called himself the Almighty God, that this is the God who sits upon the circle of the earth and he holds the waters in his hand and he brings the princes to nothing and he makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Perhaps it is that you are overwhelmed by what is happening in society around us, that you see the evil and you see the corruption and you say, is there any way that such things can be stopped? And you need to be reminded that God holds the princes of the earth in his hand as well. That our God created all that is, that he brings princes to nothing, that he makes the judges of the earth as vanity, that he has authority over all that is, and that there is simply nothing too hard for him. It is not too hard for the Lord to provide for you, Christian. It is not too hard for the Lord to direct you. It is not too hard for the Lord to restore. It is not too hard for the Lord to bring about understanding. It is not too hard for the Lord to give wisdom. It is not too hard for the Lord to heal. Because he is the almighty God. And this truth does not compel us on this day or any day to demand from God that he bend his power to accomplish our will. But rather, like Abraham in his day, it is for us to hear that he is almighty God and to fall upon our face, to humble ourselves before his might, rather than wonder, we're called to worship. Rather than doubt, we're called to submit, to yield to God those things which are beyond our understanding, to yield to God those things which are beyond our strength, to yield to God those things which are beyond our control, because he is the almighty God. I am not the Almighty God. You are not the Almighty God, but we serve the one who is. And so we yield to God those things which are beyond us. We align with him, and we allow him to work his perfect will. What we don't want to do is get in his way. And what we don't want to do is run outside of that will. Now, that does not bring with it the promise that God will do what we want. But it does bring with it the confidence of knowing that as we align with the God who is the Almighty God, He will bring about His 
purposes in his way according to his good pleasure. And as a child of, living, of the living God, what more can we ask for? That we stand under the hand of the almighty God. That as we face the circumstances that lie before us, daunting though they may be, insurmountable though they may look, we do so recognizing that the one who stands with us is El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And may our hearts be encouraged on this day to follow that one, to align with that one, to submit to that one. And so find the blessings that come from doing so. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.